You are listening to the Reality Steve podcast with your host, Reality Steve. He's got all the latest info and behind the scenes juice on Katie's season of The Bachelorette and interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. Now, here's Reality Steve. What's up, everybody? Welcome to podcast number 246. I'm your host, Reality Steve, one of my favorite podcast guests to have on, Emily O'Brien, formerly a Ben Flanick season, currently an epidemiologist at Duke University. You've heard her on a couple times already, and now we're bringing her on again, seven, eight months since her last appearance when the vaccines first started rolling out in December of 2020. Now we're having her on to talk about the Delta variant and the numerous stories that are going on in and around this country regarding COVID, the Delta variant, breakthrough cases, all that stuff. We cover a lot, 90 minutes worth of stuff. Well, actually, the last 10 minutes we play a fun game, but um, uh, 80 minutes straight of of this stuff. So that'll happen uh, in a minute. I do want to uh, talk a couple things Bachelor-related. These are Bachelor-related and F-Boy Island-related, and this is all spoilery. So if you are not interested in hearing anything spoilery about the rest of Katie's season or the final episode, it's only one episode left, um, fast forward, and then I'm going to talk about F-Boy Island. Episodes four through six were released today. Maybe you've watched them by the time you listen to this podcast. Maybe not. Maybe you're going to watch them tonight, but episodes four through six are now out on HBO Max I told you to watch the first three last week. I'm sure you liked it. Episodes four through six are even better. If you've watched them, you know what I'm talking about. But I'll get to that momentarily. But I do want to say this. After yesterday's column, I had four people distinctly email me and say, hey, are Katie and Blake still together? It was literally in the first paragraph of my column yesterday. Like I went over hey, I know that there's been rumors around there and Katie's posting this and what about this shade that she seems to be throwing and what about this and that Instagram post was really cryptic. Katie and Blake are together. They're happy. They're engaged. Nothing has changed. It hasn't changed since the day before, two weeks before the show even started when I said she was engaged. It hasn't changed since I found out that engaged person was Blake and it hasn't changed as we head into the finale next Monday. Her and Blake are happy and they're engaged. So it was just surprising to get four emails like that that said the exact same thing, basically, when it was the first thing I talked about in uh, yesterday's column. So, yeah, so we're at that. I don't know how we get like, I don't know the details of the finale, the final episode in terms of how it breaks down and and whatever. Obviously going to pick up from Katie just being devastated of Greg leaving. And then she's got to deal with Justin and Blake. I'm pretty sure Justin is eliminated before the final rose ceremony. But ultimately, the end of the show hasn't changed in three months. Like, they've been together ever since New Mexico, and they're still together to this day. Don't. You can read into tweets and Instagram stories and Instagram posts and TikTok accounts all you want, but it's getting you nowhere because they're still engaged. So, I want to talk about F-Boy Island before we get into Emily. Um. Like I said, episodes four through six are now out on HBO Max. Maybe some of you have watched them already before listening to this podcast. If not, I'm going to go over a few of the things that I, uh, a few of the good things that happen. So very spoilery if you haven't watched yet. And uh, so fast forward if you don't want to hear. Uh, 
the twist at the end of episode four, where, you know, at the eliminations, each girl chooses two guys in her bottom two and then sends one of them home. And then the twist being at the end of episode four, oh, by the way, everyone in your bottom two, both guys in your bottom two are going home. So six guys going. I say home. We all know what home means on this show. The F boys are going to Limbro Island and the nice guys are going to the nice guy grotto. But yeah, to see uh, to see Casey in CJ's bottom two, absolutely was a shocker. And then clearly CJ was not going to eliminate Casey and he got sent away. Episode five's twist at the end of, you know, (laughs) the, hey, everybody needs to reveal their status. That was a good one because now for the rest of the show, they know who's who and they know that they can't be played anymore. And I don't think I was surprised by any of them. I mean, was anybody surprised that Casey was an F boy? Was anybody surprised that Garrett was an F boy? Was anybody surprised that Colin was an F boy? The three front runners are all F boys, you know, at least the three front runners that they've shown us in each girl's eyes. I think it's clear that Garrett is a front runner for Sarah um, I think it's clear that C- uh, Casey's a front runner for CJ, and I think it's clear that Colin has been on uh, Nakia's mind from the very get go. Wait, no, Colin is uh, CJ, right? Oh, I'm totally blanking. Sorry about that. Anyway, good twist. Now, what happens at the end of episode six? That's the one thing I mentioned it this week in my column, and even yesterday's column. I, uh, Look, I, I I thoroughly enjoy the show. I think it's great. But that's the one thing that's sticking out to me is what happens at the end of episode six. I just don't like... I understand why they did it. I don't particularly like the execution. But now I will say this. Episodes four to six are coming out today. I've seen seven and eight. And I'm probably going to see nine and ten either today or tomorrow. They're going to send it over. So I'll know how it all plays out. As of right now, I don't like the execution of that twist at the end of episode number six, but it might not. And I, and I only don't like the execution because I haven't seen the ending yet. Maybe stuff that happens in the final two episodes justifies what happened at the end of episode six. So I will, uh, I, I'm not going to give it away, but, um, we'll see, we'll see what happens and we'll see how the show ends. And like I said, I haven't seen the ending yet, but all that I have heard is the ending is insane. Like they flip the show on its head. And whatever you think is going to happen doesn't. So I don't even know. Because at the beginning of the season, what did Nikki Glazer say? You all have the chance to win $100,000. But they haven't talked about anything in terms of money when it comes to this show. What does that mean? Does it mean if you end up as a couple, you split 100000 Does it mean at the end, you kind of like Bachelor Pad, you do a, a, a keep or share kind of thing where... You can determine if somebody keeps the money over love. Does it only go to one person? Is everybody available to win this? Is everybody have a chance to win this hundred thousand? Like we don't even know. And I think that's where this is going to get crazy in the end, but I'm looking forward to watching. I want to see how this thing ends up and then I'll obviously I'll start promoting it. I won't give away any spoilers, but uh, I definitely will start promoting it. And then once this thing is over, definitely want to start talking to some of the contestants on, on the podcast in coming weeks. So we've got that hopefully lined up. Um, 
But yeah, three good episodes. I thought <laughs> Garrett. You know, it was interesting with the Garrett stuff with the girlfriend. Um, uh, when I saw her and they were looking through the social media, which is like a, a brilliant idea. And it's something I think Bachelor and Bachelorette fans have been clamoring for for a while. Why not let the lead at least get some sort of peek into these guys' Instagram accounts and social media accounts and whatnot? But so FBoy Island leans into that. Sarah and Nakia and CJ are allowed to go through the guys' Instagram accounts. And then when they saw the girl on Garrett's and saw her Instagram account, I was like, God, she looks familiar. And then I saw her name was Lauren Coogan. I'm like, God, she looks familiar. And then I went on her Instagram, and there was nothing on there that said it. But so I Googled her name, and I was like, oh, that's right. She was on season, um, wait, was it one or two of Love Island, U.S.? She was on, I'm already forgetting. I think she was on last season, right? Last season of Love Island, U.S., in Vegas. Uh, so I knew she looked familiar. And then I looked at Lauren's page. And looked at her Instagram feed, and she's throwing shade at Garrett right now. I just, I'm, I'm really confused. I need to see how this show plays out because I'm really confused. I was confused on Lauren's answers when Sarah was, and Garrett pulled her up on FaceTime or Skype, whatever you want to call it. And then I look at Lauren's Instagram feed, and I'm like, I'm, wait, wait, does she hate him? Does she? Is she cool that he went on the show? Like, I'm so confused because when she answered Sarah, she was like, no, we're done. You know, I'm I'm fine. Nothing to, you know, we're broken up. But then yet she's throwing shade at him on Instagram. So I'm totally baffled. But anyway, um, three good episodes. Check them out. You'll like it. Uh, seven and eight are more. Seven and eight's episodes are more about. Um, the only thing I can tease about those is they're more about just getting down to their final guys. Seven is about going from four guys down to three, and eight is about going from three guys down to two. So, yeah, that's that's what you're looking at. At Basically, at the end of episode eight, all three girls will be down to their final two guys. So I'm not going to tell you who that, who that is, but um, that's what you're looking at for episode seven and eight. Not as much drama. There is a little bit, um, but very, very good stuff, and I'm... I can't wait to watch the ending. I can't wait to watch 9 and 10 to see what this big, crazy-ass ending is all about. And I don't know anything about the ending. I don't know who is with who or if somebody's single or somebody's not. I have no idea. So looking forward to it. Hopefully I'll know that in the next day or two. But check it out. HBO Max, episodes 4 to 6 of F-Boy Island are up now, so go check it out. But without any further ado, let's get going. You know her, you love her. This is her third time on the podcast, Emily O'Brien, episode 246. All right, here she is. This is her third time on the podcast. Uh, you first saw her on Ben Flanick's season of The Bachelor years ago. God, 10 years ago, whatever it was. Uh, now she is an epidemiologist at Duke University. Like I said, third appearance on this show. It is Emily O'Brien. Emily, how are you? I'm good. Are you tired of having me on yet? <laughs> well, no, because one, people ask for you, and two, we just keep getting new developments. Like when we, for those that don't know, when we first had you on, I believe it was within the first month of COVID in March or beginning of April 2020, 
to talk about like, hey, what can we expect out of this thing? Because this is was unheard of in the history of everybody that's currently living on this earth. We hadn't we hadn't been in a any sort of pandemic, and you laid a lot of stuff out there that ended up being true. Uh, and then I think I had you on around December when the vaccines were emergency approved. And it was, again, like, well, what can we expect? What does this mean? And stuff like that. And people really loved your information. Now I wanted to have you on seven months later, eight months later, to discuss the Delta variant and a lot of things that come along with that. And I guess I'll just start right there because this Delta variant is seemingly worse than COVID. But in layman's terms, can you explain what the Delta variant is and what it is doing? Sure. And I'll just, for the record, I'm so glad that we've moved past discussions about whether we need to leave our Amazon boxes outside for three <laughs> days before bringing them in. Yeah, or, um, or wipe down the, the, the food that's delivered if we need to disinfect the bags that they're brought in and stuff like that or not touch a door handle. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've made some progress, yes. thankfully. Sure. Um, okay, so so Delta variant. Um, <clears throat> it's it's complex. I, I'll say on a sort of biological level, but at, like a conceptual level, it's pretty simple. So first, we know that all coronaviruses mutate, right? Um, the virus is reproducing all the time, and there are mistakes that happen along the way. Um, and some of those mistakes, most of them actually don't change how the virus infects people or how sick people get from the virus. There's a very small percent of those mutations that do matter and that do change how well the virus is able to infect people and how potentially how sick they get from it. So Delta is a variant that has resulted from one of those changes to the original or what you might hear referred to as the ancestral strain of SARS-CoV-2, which, as we all know, causes COVID-19. And it, of course, it's not the first mutation that we've seen. We've known all along that variants were coming. What we really hoped, I think somewhat naively, but optimistically last year was, okay, we'll get to a point where um, either we have enough natural immunity from past infection or a vaccine so that we don't have to face any mutant, mutant virus, any uh, variant that is going to cause us any major problems, right? That was sort of the hope. Um, unfortunately, we are facing significant problems from Delta. This is a special variant. Um, it was first discovered in India in December of last year. Um, it now represents over 80% of our cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., and that's increasing every day. Um, so why is this variant special? So it's super contagious. It grows much more quickly in the respiratory tract, and as a result, is spreading about 50% faster than alpha, which is the first sort of major variant of concern. Um, and alpha spread 50% faster than the original strain of SARS-CoV-2. So we're looking at a virus that spreads much more quickly. Um, so people are getting sicker. They're getting sicker faster. Um, it's a variant that is affecting younger people more, um, and this has you know, really borne out in all the data that we've collected since this first emerged. So, so why are people so worried about this now? Um, the CDC last week um, had an internal presentation, a um, set of PowerPoint slides that um, really outlined the threat of Delta, and it made a bunch of people who were like, moderately concerned sit up and start to become really concerned. 
Um, a couple of the high points from that presentation, which was leaked and is um, available, I think, through the Washington Post. Um, so, first of all, confirm what we know about Delta being more contagious. They compared it to um, chickenpox and Ebola uh, in terms of how contagious it is. So scary. Um Viral loads for people who are infected with Delta are over a thousand times higher than people infected with the original coronavirus strain. And then importantly, the viral load that was measured in so-called breakthrough cases or people who become sick despite being vaccinated, um, those, those people had viral loads that were similar to viral loads in unvaccinated people. And so all of a sudden, we went from thinking vaccinated people might be less likely or should be less likely to transmit COVID than unvaccinated people to thinking, hmm, based on the viral load data, looks like vaccinated people may actually be important vectors or important um, sort of factors in transmitting this virus. And so it's, it's almost like the way that it was presented and the way people reacted, almost like a totally different virus than the original strain. So we know that it's based on a mutation and it is a variant, but just extreme changes in how contagious it is and um, the ability to be so present in the respiratory tract, the viral load so high and people who'd been vaccinated, it, it really made everybody in the scientific community sit up and, and take notice. And so the statement that this that um, has been going around about like the reaction to this is that the war has changed. So you know, we're in this war against COVID. All of a sudden, the enemy is a different enemy. And as a result, we should probably change how we've been thinking about this. OK, so there's a lot there. Um, I, I have a first question that off of that that's kind of naive and I guess I maybe really don't understand if somebody goes in for a, a COVID test right now whether they're vaccinated or unvaccinated and they test positive for COVID does that COVID test specifically say you have COVID or you have Delta or is it doesn't it, it doesn't matter I know in most of the cases right now that where people are testing positive like you said it's up to 80 percent or something like that that people have it does it specify on your positive test you have the Delta variant and or versus you have COVID or no to my knowledge, it's still just a positive negative result that most people are getting through commercial testing. And then a small percent of those positive tests are sequenced um, sort of in the background to identify how prevalent Delta is. But that's a separate process, to, to my knowledge. There, there may be some commercial tests that specify, but I'm not aware of any. Okay. So we know that, as you said in your answer, it's certainly more contagious than COVID, way more. But what do we know right now about its mortality? Like, is it more deadly or is there not enough data just yet? So this was the other, um, yeah, this was the other concerning thing about that leaked presentation that really depressed a lot of us in the scientific community. So there was a slide um, that summarized a couple of studies from outside of the U.S. Um, they're from Canada, Singapore, and Scotland, um, that measured hospitalization, intensive care unit stays, and death um, in people who infected with the Delta variant versus um, other variants versus the original strain. And what those studies found, um, again, quite depressing, that people infected with the Delta variant had anywhere from about one and a half to four times higher odds 
of all that really bad stuff relative to people who were infected with either um, earlier variants or um, the original strain. Um, and so this is, you know, when we think about the ability of a virus to, to cause major disruption in our lives, um, more and more people getting infected is obviously problematic um, in terms of absolute numbers, because then you end up with more and more people in the hospital. But if those infected people have also a higher risk of being hospitalized or in the ICU or dying, then we're talking about something that not only transmits more quickly, but also causes worse problems, which is um, just a double whammy and really disconcerting. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much here and Obviously, the media is playing a large role and how people consume their media and what they read about this whole thing is is ways things can be swayed. Because the thing that we're hearing about now is breakthrough cases like, hey, fully vaccinated people are catching covid, whether it's the Delta variant or, or whatever. They're they're getting it. And then the other side, the people that don't want to get vaccinated are saying, well, why get vaccinated now? You can still get it if you get vaccinated, which we'll get to in a moment, how absurd that statement is. But the way it's being presented, last week I read 125,000 people that are fully vaccinated have gotten COVID after being fully vaccinated. However, when you put that headline out there, it's very misleading because... There have been over 160 million people in the United States who are fully vaccinated. It's almost half, I think we're a little over 50% now of adults, um, 160 million total out of whatever it is, 330 million people in this country. Um, 125,000 out of six, 160 million is 0.001% of people who are fully vaccinated are getting COVID. But when you put a headline out there that says 125,000 people fully vaccinated have, re, have gotten COVID, it, it's a little more scary, but... I think you need to present the numbers in that way. It's still a very, very low percentage. And I think the most important thing to communicate, and honestly, one of the major reasons I want to have you on is because I'm sick of the misinformation that's being put out there by headline seekers, by clickbaiters, by certain hosts out there who have a giant audience. The most important thing to communicate about the vaccine is it's going to make it less likely you get COVID if you get the vaccine. If you get COVID after getting the vaccine, it'll be less severe. And if you do get a severe case of COVID, fully vaccinated, you're still very unlikely to die. No one ever said getting the vaccine means you will never, ever, ever get COVID. But all you need to do is look at the numbers. You know, 125,000 out of 160 million, that's, I'll, I'll, I'll take those percentages. Yeah, I mean, you're... You're touching on a couple of important things. First, um, are you applying for like a graduate degree in public health anytime? <laughs> no. no. Well-versed in some of these concepts. So, so the first concept that you're touching on is like maybe like the epidemiology 101 mantra, which is like always care about the denominator, right? So when you see these absolute numbers, like the 125,000 that you mentioned, is certainly sounds scary. And then you think about the number of people that have actually been vaccinated, which is exactly what you did, as you described, like some of the faulty logic here. And when you take that 160 million, you can see that the percentage is very, very low. And actually that the vaccines are doing exactly what 
we thought they would and we hoped that they would based on what we saw in clinical trials. So, of course, we're going to expect some infections, but no vaccine is perfect. Um, And fortunately for us, what we're seeing is effectiveness in the real world that it looks very similar to what we saw in the trial data, which the only way that it can really be described is miraculous. There's an incredible reduction in overall infection and, as you mentioned, importantly, hospitalization and death. So that's the second piece that is really critical. I mean, when you, when you look just straight you know, at the numbers, again, the stuff with COVID tends to be politicized. When you just look at the numbers, here's, here's what they tell you. Now, about 97% of people who are hospitalized are not vaccinated. And about 99% of people in the ICU are not vaccinated. And again, we're talking about a population that has just about 50% now in August of 2021 that are are vaccinated. Um, And and so these statistics, like they're so extreme, it's almost like they're made up. Like it is, it's, you never see this strong of an association in, in epidemiology. I mean, this, it's just so incredible, the disparity in people who are getting really, really, really sick by vaccination status. It's just an incredible difference. And that to me, you know, if I were on the fence, um, would be like the the number that I would come back to in, in my thinking that like, when you look at people who are hospitalized, or unfortunately, in the ICU, the vast, vast, vast majority of them have not been vaccinated. Yo- and so that's, that's the, the key here. Like, unfortunately, we're going to probably be dealing with COVID for way longer than any of us wanted to be. But if we can manage our risk of severe outcomes like hospitalization and death, we might end up sick a few times. We might need some boosters, but we're not going to have the major impact of catastrophic illness and and negative consequences um, that we would have had without vaccines. You know, I hate to sound morbid here, but, just, I mean, for people that are whatever questioning and I, I'm not going to get it and you want to put your foot in the ground or whatever, that's fine. I mean, I'm not going to sit here. I mean, shaming people who are getting, who don't want to get the vaccine isn't certainly going to make them run and go get it. I, I, I've figured that out by now. But the morbid side of me and, you know, taking science into effect and you called it, I mean, everyone's been calling this, you know, the, the miraculous vaccine, the miracle vaccine. Can you just imagine if we didn't have a vaccine yet, where we'd be as a country? We would be, I mean, we're at 675,000 deaths, I think, around there right now. My guess is we'd probably be in the million and a half, two million deaths by now if this vaccine was not developed. I mean, I, it's hard to put a number on it, but just kind of looking at the numbers, can you imagine if from January and through right now, the vaccine still wasn't out or they were still working on it or there were a lot of failures during the trials and we were still waiting on one. I mean, where would we be as a country right now if there was no vaccine? It would be yeah. ugly. I mean, like, it would be, like out of a movie, ugly. It would, yeah, it would be extremely ugly. I haven't seen any like formal calculations of what, what the death toll would look like. I'm sure someone's done them. Um, it would be scary. Um, and then we'd also have obviously major life disruptions Um you know, think about like the travel industry, could they have withstood further um, disruption and having to shut down as a result of this raging pandemic? Um, It's, it's hard to think of what the like the long-term economic impacts would have been had we not been so lucky um, to have multiple vaccines that um, 
were as effective as the ones that, I mean, it, there, it really is a, a gift that we have the, the vaccines that we do. And um, that's the, the challenging part to understand, um, you know, when you think about hesitancy and you're exactly right. It, it's the shame approach is not effective. Um, I, I think there are a number of um, sort of empirical approaches to trying to understand exactly what's going on in people's minds. I know we're going to get to this um, later, but um, making people feel guilty or stupid or um, reckless is is probably not the best strategy for bringing them on board. Um, it's really talking to people, answering their questions, listening to them. Um, and then, you know, maybe some other things at a high level, uh, like FDA approval that could be coming down the pipe that will move the, ne- the needle as well. Yeah. Um, I, I just, you know, I like, like I didn't, I didn't mean to bring up just this death and destruction of, of the world, but I just, it's more for the people who constantly say, and maybe still don't buy this or it's just numbers and it's just, and are finding ways to make every excuse in the book to not, you know, get a vaccine or don't think it's safe or whatever the case may be. Just, just understand that it's amazing that we got a vaccine in what, nine months to 10 months uh, after the pandemic hit. And we are at, you know, 50% of this country is, is fully vaccinated and, the numbers have dropped significantly um, in terms of the vaccinated. Now, as as long as people are staying unvaccinated, and the thing that is scary to think about is we got, you know, um, the Delta variant has popped up, and now the unvaccinated people, you know, the talk about this is a this is a pandemic for the unvaccinated now because for the most part, like we said. Point zero zero one percent chance if you're fully vaccinated that you will ever catch COVID. Um, so this is a pandemic for the unvaccinated. I, I think that's safe to say. I don't think that we're speaking out of line when we say that. But as long as more people keep continue to stay unvaccinated, are there going to be more variants popping up? Like it, like when we get when Delta dies down, are, are we going to all of a sudden have a new one? I mean, I, I hate to bring this up and this probably is going to freak some of the people out, but you know, just yesterday I read South Korea, two cases of the Delta plus. It's like, oh shit. The De- now we got to, now we got the Delta plus really like, when is this like as long that's what scares me is I know there's a section of this country. That's just no matter what you tell them, they're never going to get it. So where are we at? If we never get to 70, 75% of the U S fully vaccinated, is it just going to be variant after variant popping up? Yeah, I mean, so again, this is we, so we have you know we have the full Greek alphabet that we can uh, get to, um, and then I don't know what we'll do after that. So so yeah, I mean the the basic biology of it is that as long as there are enough willing hosts, the virus will happily make its home and will reproduce and mutate along the way, and that the more willing hosts there are, the more people who are unvaccinated. Um, the more opportunity the virus will have to settle in and reproduce. And just by chance alone, um, there will be mutations and potentially important variants that will come from those mutations. And so the hope is that we'll have enough people with some combination of natural immunity um, and or vaccination that there won't be enough opportunity for something super scary, worse than Delta, 
um, to to show up and to propagate um, to evade vaccines. Um, it's anybody's guess about how that's going to go. I mean, that some of the major moving parts are things like employer mandates, school mandates, more and more. Those are coming out every day. So if we see a meaningful uptick in the number of people who are vaccinated, then we could reduce our, our risk of having something much worse show up. But who knows how, how that's going to happen um, and, and what our numbers will look like in terms of population coverage um, in, in the next few months. We can be hopeful. Yeah, I mean, you talk about vaccine mandates, and that's above our pay grade and whatnot. I mean, it's just I, I don't think it can happen universally, even though there the funny thing is there are vaccine mandates since we've been kids. Like you, you've not been able to enter certain schools without certain shots. Like if this is just added to the list as an adult, like I, I mean, look, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I don't care if if I had to show my card everywhere I went, I wouldn't care, you know, but there are people that don't think that way. However, um, you know, I, I with this, and this is always something I've said this to my friends and, and I've just been like, for the people that are unvaccinated, it's like clearly, even if you're somebody that's, you know, really adamant about this and are posting on social media every chance you can get about the vaccine and it's government control and they're throwing a microchip in you and stuff like that, even if you're one of those people, which in my eyes makes you completely unhinged, but even if you're one of them, I don't want anyone to die from this. I don't want anyone to suffer from this. But there's a part of me that's like the people that are so staunch about it. It's like the only way I think you can get through to someone like that is if they got it. But I don't want them to die from it. So it's like I almost feel like I want people who are so staunch and so anti-vaccine, this vaccine, to almost like get it and, you know, almost, hey, go on a go on a breathing tube for two weeks and then tell me how you feel about this. And are you going to come out of that and say... I'm still not getting it. Then I guess you might just be dumb. But um, it's like one of these things where you almost feel like to get through to these people, it's almost like I, I then I want them to get it. Someone that's so like, no, this is fake or no, this isn't real. Get it. But I don't want them dying from it. I don't I don't I don't wish death upon anybody, but maybe suffer a little bit if you're if you're that staunch about it and that adamant that this is not a big deal and this is the government control and microchips and all that stuff it's just that's where it's it's so weird because you know you want people to get it um you want people to get the vaccine and those that don't want to it's like well what can i do to convince them how about how about being on a breathing tube for two weeks and almost getting there but it's like it's like you don't want someone to go through that either it's just it's a very tough thing because we need to get to I don't know. It looks like 70% is even going to be tough to get to. Uh, We have 100 million people that aren't vaccinated right now. Like my my confidence in getting 50 to those 100 million um, vaccinated, very low right now. You know, I don't know what to do. Yeah, I mean, I so especially from like, you know, you think of like the healthcare worker perspective. I mean, these are people who've really been through it and were called heroes last year and, um, you know, took care of people who were sick, potentially putting themselves at risk, their families at risk. And now you think about people who are coming in and are seriously ill and the majority of them are unvaccinated. The majority of deaths from COVID now are preventable. How, how frustrating that must be. Um, you know, particularly when you're talking about 
infection from a variant that may um, maybe will turn that healthcare worker into a vector that could then bring the virus home to their kids. I mean, it's it's really the situation I think in healthcare is is really sad and, and disheartening, um, especially for people who've done so much over the past couple of years. And what many of them have said is, hey, you know, if you think this is a hoax, don't believe in vaccination, don't want to get vaccinated, just come spend like a 24-hour shift with me in the ICU or, um, you know, help me triage patients in the ED where, where there's a surge. And you can see like what, what it looks like um, sort of face-to-face. Because I think what you're talking about is that we, we see numbers like, you know, the, the 600,000 over 600,000 who died and, and the, the tendency is like, it almost doesn't, it doesn't connect. Like the tendency is that it's too big. It's too much. Um, and we, we don't really want to process it. And it just, it feels, we, we feel a disconnect from that. And yeah. I think you're describing the need to have people feel more connected so they can make a more informed decision because for many people, especially young people, um, it hasn't, you know, hasn't really hit them or if they've been sick, they've been mildly sick and gotten over quickly or, you know, friends have gotten sick, hasn't been a big deal. Um, I've seen some of that in my own family and it's frustrating to see because um, I think it's a very individualistic perspective. And to me, it's a moral question. You know, do you care about other people who might be more vulnerable than you? Um, And that's where I get kind of depressed thinking about um, how that, that doesn't seem to be a major factor in, the thinking for, for people who are unvaccinated. Now I will say, you know, there are other concerns, other reasons for, for hesitation that um, I think are potentially a little more understandable. Um, But those to me are, are just so outweighed by um, the potential benefit on a sort of population or society level that, that we could get from, from all being vaccinated. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's such a bizarre virus because I mean, I think, I think right now we, we probably all know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody who has gotten it. And you've heard horror stories of, you know, lost taste and smell for three months. And some people are like, yeah, I had the chills and some body aches for a few days. Like it just affects everybody differently. There's no rhyme or reason. Hell, the vaccine itself, um, getting the shot. Some people had that 24 hour where it felt like they got their ass kicked and then, for me, you know, I got both shots of Pfizer and never had one, uh, nothing, and never got any chills, never got any fever, never had anything. Um, but some people have gotten the shot, um, did get it. But it was, you know, like we said, we knew it was going to be, if you get anything from the shot, 24 hours, and then you get, you know, you move past it. Um, so one one other thing that came up, uh, that's come up, uh, Wednesday of last week, story came out uh, that Pfizer data is suggested a third dose of COVID strongly boosts protection against the Delta variant. But then I've read some others say that we won't need a booster. Has has that definitely been determined yet? Will this be something that we get every year? Like the flu shot, I've heard stories of combining the flu and COVID. Sh- it, will, it will be one shot eventually in the future. Where are we at right now? If you had to predict, are you thinking that these 160 million people that have been fully vaccinated will need a booster shot in the fall? Yeah, at least some of them. So the study that you're talking about is um, an antibody study. So what the Pfizer data showed was that after the third dose, um, so people who'd been fully vaccinated with the first um, two doses and then gotten a third dose, um, they looked at antibody levels in those people after the third dose compared with antibodies after the second dose. Um, And they found that levels of antibodies were higher in everybody 
but that there was a pretty big difference by age. So the antibody levels are five times higher in people who are 18 to 55 and 11 times higher in people who are 65 to 85. So that's, you know, good news that it's like even more protection for people who would potentially be at risk for more severe outcomes because they're older. Um, so the, the caveat, of course, is a small study, not yet peer reviewed, um, but what everyone is sort of waiting for that has been promised, or at least um, tentatively promised, is um, application for an EUA, similar uh, or the same kind of approval that um, the first uh, two-dose series is approved under um, for a third-dose booster that should happen early this month. Um, so in the next couple of weeks, we may hear of that um, submission happening, and then hopefully there will be review of the safety data, um, review the efficacy data, and then um, approval after that if all of the data uh, meet the, the standards for the, the review committee. Yeah, and I, um, look, I'm one of these people that wouldn't have a problem. If I have to go get a COVID shot every year, I'll get it. It's just not that big of a deal to me. It hasn't, you know, like I, I've seen that this works you know, I'm sure people are screaming at me right now that are anti-vax and, you know, that's your that's your opinion. I just I don't I'll, I'll do anything it takes um, because I believe in the science and um, these numbers. Ha- the last seven months have bore it out of how this vaccine works. And if I have to get a booster shot uh, every year, I'll get it. If I have to show if we eventually move to digital cards that show you've been vaccinated or have to bring my card everywhere to get into a concert, get into a game, get into a movie theater, get into anywhere. I'll bring it. I don't care. It's not that big of a deal to me. It's like I I I I read I I read a there's been so many memes and stuff going around on Twitter, um, but there was one good one that I saw that said the <laughs> the sheer amount of people who would rather get an exotic disease that they believe the Chinese bioengineered in a lab over a remarkably effective vaccine created in the U.S. is pretty staggering. And it it is funny to think about because, yeah, there. I mean, we all know that there are people that think this is like this was done on purpose and, you know, Fauci was the one in a lab. And Fauci supports a lab that created this whole thing and he's benefiting from this and all that garbage. Um, but, like, so you would rather stay unvaccinated and rather possibly catch a deadly disease that came from overseas in China, then get something that could possibly prevent you that was created here in the United States. Like, you know, like it just seems backwards. Well, and and I'll say that it's, it's interesting to me um, to hear the sort of cherry picking of data, as you mentioned, because people who are, you know, still holding out have um, what they feel are legitimate concerns about vaccine safety, you know, they'll, they'll point to things like some of the rare cases of myocarditis and, and some of the other um, uh, extremely rare vaccine-related adverse events. Um, and it's like, well, you know, ev- everything in medicine and, and really even in health is, is always about risk-benefit. And so yeah. you, it's just focusing on a very, 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 really an infinitesimal risk relative to this massive benefit. Um, and, and to me, you know, it's it's kind of anti-science, um, you know, in science that the goal is to be objective and to kind of consider all the information instead of just one side of things. And, um, I don't know if you follow Andy Slavitt on Twitter, he's got just really awesome, thoughtful and like, um, sharp takes on, 
the politics around this. And uh, he sort of recently called out a governor from a state that happens to be in the middle of a huge surge where there are thousands of people in the hospital. Um, and Inislava basically said, listen, you know, the, the DeSantis's of the world, here they are attacking Fauci and secretly they need the Fauci's of the world. It's um, I have his quote, which I thought was so good. He said, it's clever to be anti-science so long as you can be assured there are scientists to make the next vaccine. And it's like, well, yeah, everyone who is concerned um, about, you know, the the data on one side of this and isn't considering the larger picture of the vast benefit that we're seeing. Like, that's an anti-scientific view. And it's, it's you know, these are smart people. I think they know better. Um, and, you know, the, the politics are another consideration here. But um, it's, it's just this, like, convenient kind of um, criticism of Fauci and others who, you know, are really working hard to get us beyond this. Um, and it's it's very easy to to be in that position when there's someone else who will sort of do the work and and uh, put us in a better place, um, help us move beyond this. Yeah, and and look, I mean, you're an epidemiologist, and if you've listened to the first 33 minutes of this podcast, it's not like you're saying, you know, we're. Nobody is saying that this vaccine is it's it's the whole comes down to, like you said, the risk reward of it's much, much safer to get the vaccine than to not. You're really you're really putting yourself at risk. I mean, let's let's be perfectly clear. If 10 vaccinated people walked into a room full of covid, about nine of them are going to walk out of the room without covid nine. And if you could count half people, it'd probably be closer to nine and a half Um, because the vaccine works. And, you know, look, I mean, we can talk about the vaccine working until we're blue in the face. Um, but I do want to talk about some other things that go along with it. <clears throat> you know, this vac- this obviously the idea of a booster and vaccines waning over time. And here's where I'm confused about, like, what is the strength of the vaccine right now? I know that we might, you know, need a booster, like you said, in the fall, some people. But, like, I'm... Uh, Take for me example. I'm fully vaccinated. If I come in contact with somebody who has COVID without them knowing or something like that, and I and I get exposed to it, and my vaccines, you know, fight it off, and I don't get COVID, how many times could that happen to me? Like, does it just keep fighting it off every time it becomes exposed? Because I, I guess you know, in simplest terms, for people who don't understand that this. We talked about it in the last podcast about your, you know, the vaccine is basically an email to your body saying, hey, if these guys ever come to your door, you know how to handle them and coming to your door, meaning the virus, the vaccine, the, the um, COVID or now is his long lost stepbrother, the Delta variant. Um, you know, if they show up in your system, the vaccine knows how to fight it. Um, but how many times can it fight it before it's just like, OK, we've we've had it enough. We need a we need a new supply of guys in here to fight it. Yeah, so the the question about waning effectiveness is like a super hot topic right now. So um, you can only say say so much with like you know the short term data from the trials, um, and we're obviously very eager to see how this works in real world populations as well. Um, but the best data that we have to answer this question, at least for the the Pfizer vaccine. Um, is from some some unpublished data that are, well, they're publicly available, not published in peer-reviewed journal yet, um, that 
tracked efficacy over time. And, and what that study found was that the efficacy was highest um, about two months after your second shot. So it was about 96% efficacy. Mm-hmm. And then four months after your second shot, you're at about 84%. And then it goes down by about 6% every two months. And so it makes sense that we're now seeing um, what are you know sometimes called vaccine failures or, as you said before, breakthroughs, um, especially in vulnerable people who have other um, conditions like diabetes or heart failure, um, as well as people who may have received the vaccine in you know the first month or two that it was available. And so, um, this has you know really been the foundation for thinking about a booster. You know, let's say that six months out, you're only fifty percent protected instead of ninety five percent protected. Um, should we consider a booster to to try to bump that back up? And um, you know, as, as we said with your um, question a few minutes ago, um, it's likely that there will be an EUA submission to cover these boosters. And, and the, the first submission will focus on groups of people who are mo- more vulnerable, like older people, people who are um, immunocompromised, and then those who were vaccinated more than six months ago to try to boost their immunity. Um, so, I mean, I guess the, the other thing, um, you know, just to keep in mind is that as our immunity wanes um, as a result of being, say, further out from the vaccine. This does leave us more vulnerable to infection. Um, we know that people who've received a previous vaccine um, are likely to have mild, a milder case than someone who's been unvaccinated, um, and that that infection should sort of boost or broaden our immune response to the virus. And so um, even as the effectiveness of the vaccine is waning, um, our body should still be able to produce an immune response that, um, you know, gives us further protection for some amount of time. But, you know, as as with the flu, um, continued mutations can mean that we do need these sort of seasonal um, vaccinations and that that will be important for keeping things at a you know reasonably manageable level in terms of infections and hospitalizations. Yeah, you talk about vaccine waning and stuff like that. Another reason that people are giving that they don't want to get vaccinated is I don't want to get it because I've already had COVID. I've built up the antibodies. Explain why that is not a good reason to not get the vaccine. Yeah, so we're, we're definitely learning more and more about natural immunity. And one of the things that to me is like a top line message from what we know so far is that there's a ton of variability in natural immunity after infection from person to person. So, you know, let's say that you and I got infected at the same party in March pre-vaccine. And let's say that we hadn't been vaccinated. We might have very different natural immunity at this point from one another, even though we've been infected by the same strain, same time, all of that, just because of like, um, well, because of lots of different things, some of which are, are not all that well understood, but things like genetics, things like, um, you know, other medical conditions, et cetera. Um, and so to me, the natural immunity that hasn't been all that well studied, relying on that versus a vaccine that has been better studied than almost any other <laughs> medical product um, ever and has, you know, really great safety data, really great information on um, effectiveness in the real world and also has a close eye on it from lots of different perspectives in the scientific community. Um, that is a much sure bet than just relying on our natural immunity, which which may or may not be at the level that we need it to be. Um, I will say that there there is some 
data that we have on this, um, mostly from small samples. And essentially what those data show are that um, natural immunity does confer some protection, but in people who were previously infected and, and had you know some degree of natural immunity um, and then went on to be vaccinated, that the vaccines gave them a huge boost in terms of their protection in the future. So obviously, you know, we all want to be as protected as possible and the vaccines are um, helpful for people regardless of past history of infection. And to me, that makes them a no-brainer, um, even if, if you've um, had COVID previously. Especially if you got COVID last March at the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, if you're using that as like, well, I built, I built up the antibodies in, you know, March of 2020. It's like, yeah, we're in August of 2021. I, I don't think 15 months later, you're you would be, you are, well, we know you're not more secure as if you were to get the vaccine. You know, I read something, um, a really good article. Uh, it was in the Atlantic a couple weeks ago. I think his name is, De- uh, is it Derek Thompson? I can't remember his name. Thompson is the last name. Um, but he was a reporter for the Atlantic. And what he did was he wanted to speak to only unvaccinated people. That's, he just wanted a bunch of people to respond to him that were unvaccinated and ask them why they haven't gotten it. And a percentage of the people that were not vaccinated have said one of the major reasons that they are not getting it is because the FDA approved it for emergency use. And just the word emergency, that term is what is scaring them. And I found that really interesting because they feel I'm young and healthy. It's not an emergency to me, but the FDA made it an emergency. So they must have skipped, you know, it, it, they jumped to the front of the line. It, oh, my God, we got this we got this vaccine in, in, se- in seven months or nine months out to the public in nine months. And it's for emergency use. They must have skipped over stuff. Um, but I thought that was a really interesting answer that they're scared by the word emergency, um, which is fair. I mean, I think it's more fair in January of 2021 that that was your answer. But seven months later, when the data has proven out that regardless if it has an emergency label or not against it, it's working. Um, so my question to you is, I don't, I don't know if you know this, I thought I read something actually within the last week that said the FDA is very close to removing that uh, emergency label. Why, haven't, why hasn't the FDA approved it yet? Um, and explain why emergency doesn't mean, yeah, we created something really quick to rush it out and everyone, and we skipped over a bunch of trials. That percentage... That said, that getting the approval from the FDA would make them more comfortable to get it. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'll say this is the most reasonable um, concern from from my perspective. I I think it's um, it's tricky for a number of reasons. So so I'll say, uh, you know, just to start that one of the one of the things that seems to have come up is like, um, again, the mutation, (laughs) the mutation of the word emergency to the word experimental. And, and I've, I've seen this referred to as an experimental vaccine in a number of different environments, um, you know, usually by, by people who have significant you know, safety concerns. Um, I think it's very important to remember that the experiments are done. Um, they were finished at the end of last year um, on tens of thousands of people. And of course, hundreds of millions have since been vaccinated. So this is, this is not something that can be called an experimental vaccine. Um, so let's talk about the word emergency. So, um, you know, uh, as you know, the, all the vaccines available right now are available under emergency use. And so the question is, you know, why hasn't the FDA come out and just given their full approval? And, and this was sort of really nicely outlined in 
um, a New York Times article that, um, you know, it's this question of confidence. And uh, the FDA's position on this is saying is really that, you know, they've been saying we don't have enough safety data yet. And if you're somebody who really takes the FDA at their word, it, it might feel a little bit disconnected to, on the one hand, say, go get vaccinated, everybody as quickly as possible. And also to say, well, we can't, you know, fully approve it because we don't have enough safety data yet. So, so obviously we know that getting more and more people vaccinated is critical to ending this pandemic at some point, or at least managing it. Um, and, and what the FDA has said is that if they move much more quickly than the typical process for full approval, um, that that could lead to a general problem with confidence in the, the FDA that, that goes kind of beyond this um, scenario of, of vaccines to prevent COVID and might call into question some of their other, um, you know, their other processes and, and sort of make people more concerned in general about their ability to regulate and really oversee um, the safety of, of these products. Um, you know, on the other hand, if you if you really play this out and you think about um, the extremely unlikely possibility that there are some serious side effect that showed up, say, 18 months down the road after being vaccinated, which hasn't happened for any other vaccine um, and it isn't consistent with really any biological models um, for how adverse events might happen. Um, it's unlikely that, you know, Americans would say, hey, like, thanks for not giving full approval. <laughs> we're, we're just, you know, really confident in you guys because you held out your full approval. And we're so grateful that you were cautious about that. I mean, I think they would still be upset that all the top officials urge people to get vaccinated, right? And so uh, that's been the argument to, to really, and actually there's been pressure kind of from all sides, as far as I can tell, on, on the FDA to accelerate this process. Of course, um, they don't want to cut corners and they only have a certain amount of bandwidth and there's a lot to consider here and more and more data every single day. So I don't think they're in an enviable position in terms of moving through that process under this, you know, in this current environment, current pressure and the amount of data that they have to get through. Um, that said, you know, it, there is some indication that that kind of approval, full approval as it's called, would encourage a, a big proportion of the wait and see folks. So the people who are saying, eh, I don't know, I want to have more safety data in hand before I decide. Um, it seems like about 44% of those people um, would be vaccinated if full approval were in place. And it would also give employers, schools, other organizations more ground to stand on, although it, you know it's not seeming like that's a major barrier now, but but if they're hesitant about putting mandates in place, once there's full approval, they, they should have, you know, all the support they need to do that. Um, so uh, there are a number of good things, I think, that could, could come from that approval. And it's sounding like that is anticipated in the next month or so based on the the article that you mentioned, um, yeah. which came out. So so I think we're in good shape, but it's 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 a very tricky scenario, I think, for the FDA, and um, they they have this very fine balance of maintaining confidence, and they have like an extremely good reputation as a very robust regulator and a, a really important mission, keeping people safe, um, and they don't want to jeopardize that in any way. At the same time, um, you know, all signs point to this being extraordinarily safe, and we're in a pandemic where um, the full approval might actually move the needle for some people. So that that's the other side of things. Yeah. And I think, you know, some people say, well, we don't know the long-term effects. Well, 
I mean, yeah, but we don't know the long-term effects until a long term time passes by. Like what if you're if you're if if you're hesitant to get the vaccine because you don't know the long-term effects, then that person is just never getting it. They're going to what's your long term? You want to wait 10 years to find out? Like we we we've we've kind of known that from what I've read when it comes to epidemiologists have said if there's going to be side effects of a vaccine, you're going to see that within what? two weeks or a month of getting it, it's not very long. It's not like all of a sudden 10 years down the line you're going to find out. But if somebody has that in their head that what we're being put in, what's being put, this vaccine being put into our body now is going to affect us 10 or 20 years down the line, I guess they're a lost cause about about getting the vaccine because I can't prove to you seven months after it's been released that there isn't long-term effects. I don't know, but you know, half, half the country doesn't seem to think there will be. Yeah, I mean, we have to use the best information that we have available right now. Um, And as you mentioned, with prior vaccines, um, if things show up, they show up early, Um, which is, you know, why I think all of us owe so much to people who raise their hands and were part of the very early phase studies before we had data on hundreds of millions of people who, you know, the vast, vast majority of people who did completely, were completely fine after the vaccine. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we of course, are collecting more and more safety data to demonstrate that, hopefully, and to, to see what happens over the long term. Um, but in a pandemic, you, you have to, again, make the best decision based on the information that, that you have available. You know, in that same article, one of the other reasons that people were hesitant about getting the virus or getting the vaccine was that they didn't trust big pharma. And, you know, big pharma is looking out uh, for their own bottom line and profit. So why should I trust that they were able to speed rush this miracle vaccine to us. And again, I think that's a fair, that would, that would have been a fair response in January when, before everything had rolled out. And now that we have seven months of data, it's showing the answer is because it works. The numbers and statistics show it. But for people who are already leery of big pharma, for whatever reason, they don't want to believe the numbers and statistics. Are, are they a lost cause to reach? Like, it seems like you can have the opinion that I don't trust big pharma. I don't trust those people, but you still can look at this and trust these results and what's happening. So few deaths among those fully vaccinated. I think it's 0.004% of fully vaccinated have eventually got COVID and died from it after the fact. So maybe you don't have to convince them that big pharma is, is good overall, but that these vaccines created by Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson work. Yeah. I mean, this is why we have regulators, right? I mean, you're right. These are for-profit companies and they do have a a business interest. Um, You know, the the good ones, um, I think most of the big ones have other missions as well that have have, um, something to do with promoting health and and improving lives for for people who take their products. Um, But, you know, this is exactly why we have organizations like the the FDA. And and, um, remember that in order for something like a vaccine to get approval, even even EUA um, approval, the trial data are painstakingly reviewed by nerds, you know, like me and other, you know, obviously far more accomplished who um, really are chosen because they can be objective and because they can look at data, 
without this business interest driving what they're what they're concluding from those data, I mean, and they take their jobs very very seriously. Um, there is a huge public health responsibility that that these people have when when they're thinking about what they recommend in terms of approval. Um, and the the amount of data and the amount of time, I mean, you ask why it takes so long for f- full approval. I mean, it, it's just an unbelievable amount of effort that goes into making sure that nothing is missed and that the full risk benefit profile is understood. Um, and it takes a lot of people and they're, they're the best of the best. Um, you know, within the FDA, they're, they're brilliant, really brilliant people who could probably work anywhere and they work for government, probably at reduced pay relative to the private sector because they really care about public health and they see the job of um, reviewing the, the data objectively and making a recommendation outside of the business interests of, of for-profit companies um, that, that really protects the health of the American people. You know, they see that as, as a mission and as a calling in many cases. And so, um, yeah, do, do you have to have some trust in regulators? Of course. But, you know, one thing that's nice about being alive today is that we have access, you know, even people who aren't part of the scientific community can can go to um, the CDC's website and and have a pretty good look at the data that are available and the processes that are in place to ensure that um, products like these vaccines are safe. And there are lots of eyes on this, way more than there have ever been on any vaccine in the past and um, or set of vaccines in the past. And to me, it's there's almost this community perspective also that gives me some comfort that, you know, scientists are, are very attentive to this. And it's a in addition to the the huge regulatory lift, there's also this this community effort. Um, lots of people working together, and lots of people having honestly a, a critical eye of other people's work. Um, the data have been vetted to far greater extent than I think people really understand. You know, we we talked about it back on the the last pod. Maybe it was the first podcast about, or it was the last one because it was right when the vaccines were coming out, where it was like, look. Because we have a vaccine now to market nine months after the pandemic, it doesn't mean steps were skipped. It doesn't mean it was rushed. It just, and I know that it goes back to what we talked about before with emergency, um, the word emergency freaking people out. Um, and if you and if you do think that it was rushed, then you should also think that the numbers would be way worse than what they are. If it was rushed and steps were we're skipped over just so we could get this in people's bodies. I don't think we'd be looking at the numbers that we are of literally 160 million people fully vaccinated and only 125 have gotten COVID afterwards. And if you even broke that down even further, I don't have those numbers, but take those 125 that have been contracted the virus after being fully vaccinated. I'm, I'm guessing that most of them are of the older age and probably people who have some sort of pre-existing condition. Like, you know, I, I, if I had to break those numbers down, it, it probably is. But like I said, I, I just think people need to understand, look at the numbers, trust these results and, and what's happening. Listen to people like yourself and listen to, you know, doctors on social media, uh, people who are in the field, people who are professionals at this and not talk show hosts. Just that's all people need to do. Now, one thing I wanted to get to is something that uh, came up when people knew that you were coming on the podcast, and I've gotten this a lot uh, from emailers, was about 
the vaccine and pregnancy and vaccines and causing infertility and stuff like that. So pregnant women getting the vaccine. What has the data shown? Because it seems to be, again, another issue, a lot of misinformation going around out there about it. So where do you stand on pregnant women getting the vaccine? Yeah, so we're in a much more confident place now than we were uh, in December about this. Um, And actually, within the past week, the um, two major sort of obstetrics and gynecology maternal and fetal medicine bodies came out and said, we enthusiastically recommend that all pregnant women be vaccinated against COVID-19. And so this is a result of a couple of different things. Um, so we know, we, uh, we knew this in December, but more and more data are accumulating to demonstrate that pregnant people are definitely at increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19. Um, the data that we have on pregnant people who have been vaccinated suggests no safety concerns um, for the, the moms themselves or for their babies. And importantly, when, again, when, as with, um, you know, the overall population numbers, when we look at people who are admitted to the hospital with COVID-19 who are pregnant, um, 98% of those people are unvaccinated. And so, um, you know, taken together, I think the data that we have point to a definite major um, benefit relative to the risk in, in pregnant people. Um, and of course, with the Delta variant um, and, and what we're seeing with pop- the population as a whole, um, those studies that I mentioned from, from outside of the U.S. especially, we may be looking at disease severity that's worse relative to ancestral strains. And so um, to me, again, this is a really a no brainer. Um, If you're pregnant, you're increased risk for severe illness from COVID-19, no safety concerns that have been identified so far, and you should be vaccinated for your health and for your baby's health. You know, one of the, one of our mutual friends, Ashley Spivey posts a lot of stuff in regards to pregnancy and, um, and the vaccine. And, you know, she is someone that has, has lost a child uh, during the COVID pandemic. And um, she still is 100% pro-women, uh, pregnant women getting the vaccine. And it was interesting because this past weekend, somebody actually emailed me that knew you were coming on and asked me, you know, can you, can you ask her about it? And she, I think, was in her first trimester. I think she's three months pregnant. And she's like, I'm really worried I keep seeing stuff out there and I don't know what to believe. I haven't really seen stuff that says I should. And, you know, I didn't know the answers off the top of my head, but I was like, I know that Ashley Spivey has posted tons of stuff on this, on her Instagram stories and even has it, I think in her highlights. And I actually, I texted Ashley. I said, Hey, where's the stuff that you posted about pregnant women in the vaccine? She gave me the link and I sent this woman, I think four, Four Instagram posts from medical sites showing that it is safe as a pregnant woman to get the vaccine. And she emailed me back and said, I'm sold. I'm getting it. I just made my appointment. And I thought that was really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think um, it is. It's hard. It's it's sometimes like, you know, people are, are, I think, overly critical of, um, others who are asking questions in, in my view, if you're asking questions, you're at least open to learning and that's a good thing. And 
um, we should we should support those people, not not be critical or roll our eyes. Or I, I, I'm so glad that you were able to share that with her. I'll say also, like, if you don't know, like, ask your doctor. That's why they're there. Um, I mean, you can you can read recommendations from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists or Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine. Um, if you don't trust them, trust trust the people who are practicing in your area and who are taking care of you and, and talk to them about the, the risk benefits and they'll have a discussion with you. Um, it's an important decision. Um, and I, I know that, you know, there are some uncertainties, but gosh, talk about being scared. If, if I were pregnant now, I would be very scared of COVID. I would be very, very scared of COVID, especially with um, the prevalence of Delta being where it is. You know, another topic that came up was obviously schools starting back up in a couple of weeks. And for, for most people, um, this has, you know, parents, uh, kind of upset in an uproar about it. And there's been talk, you know, you talked about the Delta variant is actually, you know, a little bit worse than COVID when it comes to children. Cause COVID, it was just like, yeah, but kids don't have to worry for the most part. Obviously there were cases that did pop up as, as with anything, but where are we at with kids under 12, um, being vaccinated. Is that something that I, I thought I read, but I could be wrong on this. I thought I read before the end of 2021, they think there will be a vaccine for children under 12 or did I read that wrong? No, that's right. Well, they think, they think. So, yeah. you know, again, it's, it's, um, we've had some surprises, but the way that things are going now, so clinical trials are ongoing. Um, Pfizer has said that they expect, um, to have enough data on the five to 11 year old group in September, and then kids who are two to five shortly after that. And then the youngest kids who are in the trials six months to two years uh, later in the year, like, like October, uh, November. And so that's the most that they've been willing to say right now. Um, you know, I, I think everybody has a very close eye on what is happening with back to school and you know, schools are changing their policies kind of day by day, depending on what things look like locally. Um, You know, I'm personally hopeful that, so I'll say, I I do think things are going to get worse with Delta before they get better. Um, But what happened in the UK was this, you know, huge surge that fell pretty quickly after it peaked. And if we're lucky, that'll happen for us here too. And may even, depending on the timing, um, coincide with, uh, you know, school starting and, and we might end up in a situation where we don't have an enormous number of problems with back to school. I will say that it's, it's extremely uncertain and it's, it's possible that, um, you know, back to school in-person learning, particularly in areas that are not going to be mandating masks, um, not going to have good ventilation or social distancing that, that those could contribute to, to local outbreaks. Um, but I, I'm hopeful that, you know, in, in a few months, we'll have um, enough data on safety to, to have uh, vaccines available for younger kids. And also that, um, you know, we'll be able to have kids back in school with some degree of um, protective measures before that and hopefully not see a huge increase in, in cases as a result. But I'll, I'll say this is the area where I think there's the most uncertainty and probably in the area that we're all going to be talking about the most over the coming months. Yeah. And, you know, I think we're just at a point now where, you know, 15 months, uh, where are we at? About uh, 16, 17 months since this whole thing started. You know, 
I, I, I understand the frustration level uh, with people. I had to, you know, I canceled my Vegas party this year because of the Delta variant. It was the, I was all set to have it at the end of this month. And I was just like, I don't want to take that chance, even though everybody that was supposed to be in attendance to my party, I have seen vaccination cards for. I just asked, can everybody be vaccinated? And up until last Friday, when Vegas went back to a mask mandate, I was going to have my party. But then once they said, you know, they're one of the top cities right now in terms of infection rates. I was just like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to do it. And that's, you know, it's a frustrating thing right now because after 15 months, basically in May, I think around May, maybe it was beginning of June where it was like, okay, we're through the mask phase. We're done. You know, everyone can take off their masks for the most part. And then not two months later, here comes the Delta variant and it's back to, again, certain places, certain cities, certain counties, you know, wearing masks, social distance, stay out of crowded areas. Um, it's just, how do you sell this to people? And it's just, are we looking at just continuing mask mandate here? And then in a few months we're going to be, okay, we're, we're good to go with no masks. And then, oh, here's another one. We got to, this is popping up. We, we're going to have to go back to masks. Like it's a really tough sell right now. And obviously the mask thing is very uh, divided, but I mean, where do you stand on masks right now? I'm sure you're pro masks in crowded, poorly ventilated areas. Yeah, I, I mean, I got to say, I I guess I never really understood the controversy around masks in the first place. I, I mean, I, certainly, you know, they're a little irritating, but like, are they that irritating? Like, I, I guess I don't. I think they became more of a symbol and they're, they're, they were loaded because of that rather than like being truly inconvenient or um, painful for people to wear. So I see it as like a super low cost, easy decision when in doubt, like put on your mask. Like what, why, why is it such a controversy? I, I'm, I don't totally understand why. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'll just, you know, empathize. It, it does suck to go back to what we felt like were measures that we had to put in place to, to reduce spread. And we, we thought that we were moving beyond that. And I think there's even more frustration for people who've done their part by getting vaccinated and are, you know, and made sacrifices like the one that you mentioned, like canceling your, your party. Um, and I, I guess I, my feeling is that if, if we can just embrace the suck together a, a little longer, that, um, again, hopefully we'll get through this surge. Um, if we're lucky, we won't be dealing with variants that are more contagious or more deadly than um, Delta. And and we'll maybe end up in a place where we can manage these local outbreaks and on a population level be vaccinated um, to the level where we, we won't have major national surges like the one that we're in right now. Um, that That's like the optimistic viewpoint from my perspective um it is annoying this is where we are I, I think we're all still like kind of grieving the loss of normalcy but i i think it comes back to your earlier question of like what if vaccines hadn't been as good and keeping in mind that things could have been much much worse and we're very fortunate to be here and be as protected as we are and to understand as much about the virus as we do and be able to have systems in place to track these mutations and hopefully adjust our lives accordingly. I mean, those are all great things in my opinion, and it's not ideal, but I think the hope is that we won't be in this forever and that um, if if we are in it forever, it'll be like a very local kind of um, 
problem that that pops up that we can we can deal with and instead of it being on this scale so it's not like a super rosy view but um it's where we are and i i think the sooner that we kind of come to grips with that and and try to adjust um the happier that we'll be where are we at in terms of maybe a possible medicine? Because it seems to be if, if the next step is if people aren't going to get vaccinated and we and we can't reach the sort of herd immunity that we needed to reach, seventy five percent, whatever it is, seventy seventy five, eighty percent, where we're still thirty, we're still twenty to twenty five percent away from that. Um, then it seems to be to me to the outsider who's not into medicine, it seems like the thing that needs to be quote unquote created next is someone who gets COVID preventing them from dying, like some sort of medicine that combat some drug that combats COVID. Once you do get it, taking something to calm the symptoms down. Are we other, are we, are we further along the lines with something like that or no? Yeah. I mean, so we've had a number of failures. We've had some successes. So you may have heard of monoclonal antibodies. Those are available under EUA for um, what we think of as early outpatient treatment to try to prevent um, hospitalization and other serious did, outcomes. Was was one of the failures bleach? Did that did that fail? I think it did. You know, I'd have to refer to the data. <laughs> um, go to PubMed really fast and, and make sure that I. Yeah. Um, so bleach was yeah notable failure, um, and there there are trials ongoing uh, in this space. I mean, clearly this is um, an active area, and and it's just you know evidence of the larger. I think acceptance um, as a scientific community that this is something we're likely to be dealing with for a while. Um, and, and it needs to shift from like um, what we think of as conventional epidemiology of like, you know, detect every case, contact trace every case and s- stop progression to the, the cold, harsh reality that there are going to be a number of people who are infected. And we need to do what we can to keep those people safe um, and make sure the healthcare system isn't completely overwhelmed um, and, you know, hopefully prevent as many infections as we can through vaccination. You know, it's just it's it's really weird to think and it's kind of scary that right now. As you said, at the kind of the very beginning, Delta is worse than covid. So right now we are we are starting up again. Um, and for me, obviously, the big thing in my life is sports. And obviously, last summer when sports came back in July, it was no fans anywhere. We were playing in front of empty stadiums and then. You know, restrictions were lifted where, you know, some stadiums did 10 percent of the capacity and then some were 20, 25 percent. Well, college football and pro football starting up in the next month. And from everything that I've read, every single one of those stadiums is going to be 100 percent capacity like they're they've basically blown past the we're not doing we're not doing the 25 to 50 percent like we're going back to full stadiums. Now, granted, that is outside. Uh, but they're not going to make these people in the stands wear masks. And that's what is scary that we're dealing with a worse virus than we were at this point last year, but in a month we're going to be back to full stadiums indoors and outdoors. And it just seems like that might be counterproductive, but I, I, I it, it looks like it's happening. Like I don't think that's being stopped. And I, I just don't know. I just don't know where to go. Clearly, you know, major cities are open. I saw Lollapalooza. I saw so much in Lollapalooza in Chicago over the weekend and just hordes and hordes of people climbing all over each other. Like we're not going to go back. And and even the president has said, you know, we're not going back to lockdowns. We're not going back to shutting down businesses and you can't leave your home outside of, you know, essential work. It doesn't look like we're going back to that. However, we're dealing with a worse strain right now. So 
I guess the good part is half the country is immune to it for the most part with with being vaccinated. But I just it's so kind of confusing because we're dealing with a Delta variant right now that's worse than where we were at last August 2020. And yet sports are coming in a few weeks and we're going to have 80, 90, 100,000 people in stadiums. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like there are other considerations besides the science. It's very strange. (laughs) Almost like there's, you know, money to be made. Uh, No, seriously, I mean, I think it's a a combination. Um, And people are tired of, you know, they're they're tired of restrictions. That's absolutely true, particularly people who, again, feel like they've they've done what they can um, by being vaccinated and I think there's just not there was never, as far as I could tell, any um, commitment to returning to strict lockdown unless things got much, much, much worse. And so, you know, it's kind of a I I don't think it's really in doubt, but I I guess it's it's up to where you are in the country as to whether you believe that where we are now with Delta is much, much, much worse. I think it will get worse. But, you know, even in Florida, where things are so terrible right now, they're, they're just about where they were during, I think, their um, January surge. And so there might even be this perspective of like, yeah, we've been here before. Like, we got through it. Like, we'll, we'll get through this one, um, which is sad because every, every additional case means that somebody else is at higher risk for more spread and, and potential hospitalization and death. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been strange to not see recognition of Delta as the, the problem that it is. I, I will say the um, appreciation of this has like skyrocketed in the scientific community in the past week. And so it might just take a little bit of time for that to filter down and to really be um, accepted and, and understood um, by, you know, everybody else outside of these like little ivory towers that, that we live in. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, unless, you know, I don't, maybe there's some data that the, you know, the team owners have that, that we, we're not aware of. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. It's yeah. hard to really. Yeah. I um, mean, I, I, I read something, Dr. Lena Wen, you know who she is. She, yes. uh, she's been very good on, on this. She came out with a very, um, very poignant multi-tweet tweet that basically said, did we, and this is a little bit long, but did we declare victory too early? Vaccinated people can take off their masks, but did not approve vaccination attached to it. And as a result, people understood the pandemic to be over then. The unvaccinated began behaving like they were vaccinated. And what did we see? We saw exactly what I and many public health experts predicted at the time. The honor code did not work. Surges have happened because of unvaccinated individuals. Now with the Delta variant, Restrictions are coming back, except nobody's listening anymore. President Biden absolutely declared victory too soon. That said, I also do want to commend the Biden administration for a lot of their efforts. They have been exceptional in ensuring vaccine supply and increasing distribution. Why don't we know more about common breakthrough infections? The CDC back in May stopped collecting data on mild breakthrough infections. They announced they were only going to be collecting data on severe breakthroughs, meaning severe enough to cause hospitalizations or death. Now, I really do not think this was the right decision at all. We need to understand what is the likelihood, period, of breakthrough infections. Are we talking one in 100 chance or one in two chance? We literally do not know. I hate to quite put it this way, but in a way, this is not dissimilar to what happened under the Trump administration when the mantra seemed to be, if you don't test, it's not there. Well, if you don't test and you don't track, the infections are still there. 
We just don't know about it. If eligible people in this country were all vaccinated right now, we probably would not need to be wearing masks. It is really an issue of the unvaccinated making life harder for everybody else. It's a cold, hard truth is what she said. I mean, that's about as succinct as you can get. And we probably did declare victory too early by taking off our masks in May. Um, but there's nothing we can do about it now. And that bell cannot guess, be unrung at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, can, I, I agree. And I, I think it's it's a question of really what the purpose of that change in recommendations was. I mean, was it like to me, I didn't hear the Biden administration um saying hey like we're done with covid let's all celebrate like that wasn't yeah it wasn't that type of victory well my perspective on it was that in some ways that was an attempt to move the needle on people who were not vaccinated yet and so there was some initial survey data that indicated that people who were not vaccinated yet would be motivated by not having to wear masks and so i think um it was kind of a a bold move and in, in in my mind like a totally reasonable one that they knew that risk of transmission would was low in vaccinated people at you know at the time before delta and when when prevalence was lower than it is now um and they also thought this could be like some sort of behavioral incentive for people who aren't vaccinated yet hey if i get vaccinated i don't have to deal with this annoying mask anymore um so you know may, maybe it was a declaring victory i saw it more as like a almost a public health intervention um, to try to encourage people who were not over the line on vaccination yet. but Yeah, and, the, it, it, and now the yeah. problem turns into those unvaccinated are like, wait, if I get vaccinated, I still have to wear a mask? Well, I'm not getting vaccinated yeah. then. And that's, now that's where they're at. Like, because yeah, we've had to go back to mask mandates in certain places, it's like, well, why am I going to get vaccinated? I still have to wear a mask. I thought the whole, yeah, I thought mean, the whole point to get vaccinated was I don't have to wear a mask anymore. Yeah. Well, I, and, and, you know, many of us have not lived through a pandemic. I think almost all of us have not, <laughs> yeah. at least to this scale. Um, and, and it's hard to appreciate that, like, the recommendations will change. And that's actually a good thing. That means that there's new data that we've looked at objectively and hopefully analyzed in a robust enough way that we can say something meaningful about what we should do. And if someone's changing a recommendation, like, aren't you glad that, they're doing that versus seeing new data and not updating their recommendations about what we should be doing. Like I, the For criticism sure. of flip flopping doesn't make a ton of sense to me because like, of course things are going to change. Of course we're going to learn more. Like this is what we want. Like we're moving forward. We're not, I, I know it feels like we're moving backward, but what we're really doing is like adapting to how this virus is, is operating. And that, thank goodness that we're doing that because if we weren't, I think we'd be much worse off. Well, there's a lot here. I hope people enjoyed that 80 minutes of virus, COVID, Delta talk. Um, Emily, you were excellent once again. <clears throat> I want to um, I want to end this podcast on a rapid fire question. I got uh, uh, some rapid fire questions here. However, you're and this is completely separate. This is not even we're done talking about COVID. Um, your answers to these questions are one of two answers. Ned or Henry is going to be the answer to these questions. Right. Ned and Henry are your sons. Ned is a little over three. Henry's a little over one. Uh, so I guess when I when you answer these, you have to take you have to take your memory back to when Ned was Henry's age. So here okay. we go. Rapid fire questions of Ned or Henry. Who who was the tougher pregnancy? Ned. 
Who was the tougher birth? So no, no explanation. Yes. We we might go a little explanation afterwards. I mean, if I, um, who had the tougher birth? Ned. Who's the easier sleeper? Henry. Who's funnier? Ned. (laughs) Who got, who drives you guys crazy more? Ned. (laughs) Who's the fussier eater? Ned. Ned is dominating Henry right now. Um, <laughs> who who cries louder? Henry. Oh. Uh, who got to walking quicker? Ned. Who does Ru- not- Who does Ruby like more? Neither. She. I uh, yeah neither. Yeah. Let's just go with neither. <laughs> oh really? Oh okay. Um, who is more attached to you? Henry. And finally, which one of your sons is more likely to go on The Bachelorette someday? Ned, a thousand percent. <laughs> Interesting. So, do they are they two? Are they two that have completely different personalities? Like, are you shocked that they're both your sons, or like, are they I'm, somewhat similar? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say like when I brought Henry home, I was kind of like, "Is are you really?" Like, are you really my child? Like, you know, you're in the hospital. They like put bracelets on you to make sure you don't take home the wrong baby. But he was so different that I was like, I don't know if I got the right one. I'll say, um, you know, Ned is a wild child. He's like, he's like, he's kind of like me. He's like super intense. He's like kind of a little awkward socially. He um, is like super determined, but he, he's got a fun loving side too. Henry is like the most social, happy fun baby he's like always smiling like um even my husband will like like i'll show him a picture of henry and the the joke that we have is is he smiling because he's smiling and every like it's impossible to get a picture where he's not smiling the kid is so happy i i don't it's not for me let's just be clear it's not for me he's he's just the sweetest thing and um i don't i think that may mean that he's going to be like a terrible toddler and like, or like hate me as a teenager. Um, but for now he's like the sweetest thing. And Ned is like just very intense and determined and like kind of serious. And, um, you know, is kind of wild. Is, does Ned fuss about, he's over two. So does he fuss about masks? How's, how's he been with masks? He's okay with masks. Yeah. Better than I would have thought. Um, he did get to pick out the masks. So that helped a little bit. Um, he's, he still doesn't like to wear them for like a long period of time, but it generally, if he's with other kids who are in masks, he, he adapts pretty quickly and he's okay with it. What is Ned's a little over three, right? He was born in March of 18, right? Yeah. He'll be three and a half. So where is he? What is his thing? What is he into? He is super into marble runs. So like, it's basically like a Lego set that you set up. Or like a marble to like go down a bunch of shoots and huh. like I think he's gonna be like an engineer or something. He he's like very into those. Um and he also really loves I don't know if you've seen um Alvin Zoo's videos on Tasty where he does like these really complex recipes or like they're not that complex, but they're just these long recipes. So he makes like hundred hour brownies or like, you know, um seventy two hour chocolate chip cookies or like whatever. Ned will like watch those all day. He loves them. Huh. I mean you of course, we never we never do screen time in my house, but but on the very rare occasion that we do, <laughs> we watch those videos. <laughs> I was going to say, what what like kids show stuff is he into, or 
play on his iPad or something. Uh, yeah, he he'll like Daniel Tiger. Um, but if he could watch videos of Marvel Maze or Marvel runs all day long, he would do that combined wow. with the BuzzFeed Tasty cooking videos. And what about an, what about Henry? Yeah. Where's he with what is his thing? He just kind of likes to smile and, and walk. he just learned to walk actually about two months ago. So he's still like a little wobbly and he just likes to he has like this determined look on his face and he'll do this like bull legged walk all around the house and he just kind of does his own thing. It's it's very strange because Ned had two doting parents who had no idea what they were doing for like the first years of his life. I mean, you still don't know what, what we're doing, but um, he he's like very dependent on us. And Henry has had some degree of like, I don't want to say neglect, but let's just say it's not as easy to give full attention to two when you, as it is when you just have one. And so he's he's learned to become a lot more independent and likes to do his own thing, which I think is going to serve him well. Um, and, you know, so so Ned being more dependent, like that's, uh, you know, one of the psychological issues that will come up during his discussions when he's on The Bachelorette. I'm sure that uh, you know, his parents were hovering and uh, he's never found love. Do they do they fight a lot or does like does Henry jump on his back and Ned just like get off me, dude? Or they does he love his younger brother or is he indifferent in doing his own independent thing? They like each other, but they've had some run ins. Um Mostly around like the frustration, like wanting mom and dad's attention thing. There, there are some like there's some like pushing every every now and then, and like um, if Ned's doing something that he doesn't want Henry to be part of, there's like you know a a scream that's coming at any moment, yeah. um, being pushed away. So typical sibling stuff, but they're they're pretty good friends. Okay, good. Um, well. Emily, I'm glad we can end on that. And uh, again, I know that um, you've been busy at work. I'm so glad you could take 90 minutes out of your day to uh, to do this and uh, inform everybody uh, about what's going on and just kind of present information that maybe they are hearing wrongly in other places. And I guess the biggest thing to take from this podcast is listen to people who know what they're talking about. Listen to people who went to school for this, who studied it, who whose profession this is, not talking heads who aren't doctors, scientists, epidemiologists. It's just, that's the biggest thing. And then obviously the biggest, the other big takeaway is just please get vaccinated. Like it'll help the country if more and more people get vaccinated. Perfectly said. So no, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. And I'm sure in, uh, I'm sure when the Delta plus variant uh, explodes in the next six months, (laughs) be bringing you on and saying hey remember when we had you on in august and there was two cases in south korea of the delta plus and now uh it's all over the u.s yeah i'm sure we'll be yeah we'll dealing with we'll that call each months. other from our from our underground bunkers and um have a good discussion that'll be fun yeah um emily thank you so much and um good luck with everything and uh, we'll be in touch thanks steve you got it thank you so much to emily for coming on again and taking 90 minutes out of her workday to go over everything COVID related, Delta variant related. Um, I had a lot of notes on that one. I tried to get to all of it. I think I did at least of the stuff that I wanted to cover. I felt it was everything. We got schools, pregnancies, Delta variant, vaccinations, masks, mandates, all that stuff. Um, I I hope that um, you took something from that. And I I just hope people understand, like, look, I get it now that, you know, shaming people who are unvaccinated is just, 
is not the answer. It's not going to work. But the bottom line is we're not getting through this until we get 70 to 75% of this country vaccinated. And right now we're a little over 50. There's 100 million people still unvaccinated. We need to vaccinate at least another 50 million. And seven months have passed. The data is out there that shows the vaccine works. I, I'm, I, I don't know what it's going to take. We went over a few of those things, talking about the FDA you know, eliminating the term emergency use and just approving the vaccine. And, you know, there are other factors involved, but um, that seems to be one of them. I mean, that was straight from a direct author who talked to unvaccinated people that they, they, they'd feel more comfortable if that if the FDA just approved it, not of emergency use. Regardless of what they think the word emergency means in this particular case, if they feel comfortable, great. Like, I'm all for anything that gets people vaccinated. So I don't care what you have to do. Um, I just I, I just would hope people would listen to actual doctors and actual epidemiologists and people that study this stuff for a living as opposed to headlines on Facebook and talk show hosts that don't study this for a living and have an agenda to push. It's all we're asking. Because for the most part, outside of someone who maybe is immunocompromised and cannot receive the vaccine, I think there's pretty much a, a comeback for everybody who has an excuse as to why they're not getting it. An excuse that, and, 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 and to be backed up with facts as to, okay, well, that's not correct when you say this. Oh, I already had COVID. Okay, well, here's why that's deemed unnecessary and pointless. Um. So I think there, there, I think there's stuff out there. Just want people to be vaccinated. Obviously, the, we uh, Emily hit on it towards the end. Like it's just kind of being forgotten because we did open up a few months ago. Like people aren't taking into consideration. Like we're still in this pandemic, and it's not going anywhere. Probably won't go anywhere for a while. It's just a matter of how many people. If we can get seventy to seventy-five, even eighty percent of this country vaccinated, then the virus can't mutate as much as it can right now, but only half the country is. So all it's doing is finding new hosts and mutating. And that's not good at all. So, you know, I, I hope you learned something from the podcast. That's, that's all. Um, I wanted to have a professional on to discuss it. She obviously does it for a living. She's in the epidemiology field. She's spoken to plenty of other people in the community that are doing research on this and doing the studies just listen to the science because the science has shown in the last seven months since these vaccines have been distributed. In January of 2021, this country was averaging 250,000 infection cases a day. In May, we were down to about 20. May and June, we were down to about 20,000 a day in the U.S. That is huge. And what happened between January and June? Vaccines rolled out. Now it's starting to go back up. Now we're at, I think, 70. I think yesterday was 70,000, something like that. Yet the amount of people that are getting infected are the unvaccinated. It's 97%, 99% of the people that are testing positive right now are unvaccinated, you know? So that's going to continue to happen until we get a higher amount of people vaccinated. So I hope you learned something. hope you can take something from it. And um, maybe even pass it on to people who in your life 
are refusing to get it or, or don't understand or just are not willing to listen. Just listen to the science. It's working. So thank you to Emily for coming on. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. Please rate, subscribe, and review in Apple Podcasts. It is much appreciated. And um, we are back next week. Again, I think I actually have my next two or three weeks pretty planned out of how the podcast is going to go. So I will keep you updated on that. So for Emily O'Brien, I'm Reality Steve. Thank you for tuning in. And we will talk to you next week.